Welcome to Turn of the Century, a podcast about the turn of the 20th century. I'm Joe Hawthorne, and today we're talking about the terrible, fantastic, no-good, freedom-loving, neo-colonial, and fiercely contested Republic of Cuba in the first part of the 20th century. When we last spoke with Professor Luis Perez, Cuban revolutionaries seemed on the verge of independence. The United States was willing to help overthrow the Spanish Empire, but many U.S. politicians seemed to have self-serving motives. War, after all, isn't cheap. To make a long story short, 1898 was a big year. The U.S. battleship Maine mysteriously exploded on a peaceful visit to Havana Harbor, and the North Americans used this as a pretext to invade Cuba. In theory, this was a humanitarian campaign to free refugees from a colonial rule. In practice, however, the U.S. often ignored local forces and began to set up a Cuban government that was sympathetic to their big businesses. The island became a kind of protectorate, and the North Americans reserved the right to intervene as they saw fit. Many locals, especially darker-skinned Cubans, saw this as a kind of neo-colonialism. Professor Perez describes the immediate aftermath of the Spanish-American-Cuban War and evaluates the legacy of this time period. Why do North Americans and Caribbean Americans view this history differently? How did these events affect Fidel Castro, communists, and the Cold War? How does this history affect us today? Let's find out. Welcome back. Today, we're talking again with Professor Luis Perez about Cuban and North American history, Cuban and United States history, and the legacy of 1898, of U.S. involvement in what before then was Cuban War or Wars of Independence. Professor Perez, thank you so much for returning. Thank you. So we were talking before we started recording about the anniversary, the 100-year anniversary of 1898. And some of the interesting lessons about historiography, about Spanish, Cuban, different views of the same history. So can you go ahead and talk about that story? Sure, sure. And, uh, yeah, in 18, 1998, there was a commemorative, the 100th, commemorative, 100th, the centennial of the uh, of the war was um, observed uh, in Europe, of course in Spain, uh, in the United States, across university campuses and programs and conferences, and of course in Cuba and in Puerto Rico and in the Philippines. Um, and, you know, and all, and, and all the uh, parties who were involved in this war, which was in, in its own, in many ways, a global war that stretched from the Philippines uh, to Europe, to the Caribbean. Um, and there was a moment of, of, of what, how would I, of ironic pathos, I guess, um, that happened in Cuba in the summer of 1898, um, a time in which um, the United States had been applying uh, extraordinary diplomatic, political, and economic pressure on Cuba in the aftermath of the of the collapse of the socialist bloc in Europe, 
period is known in Cuba as a special period, which was uh, an economy that had just bottomed out. And during these years, uh, as the United States continued to put put the the, the pre- added pressure on on Cuba through the Torricelli Act in 1992 and Helms Burton in 1996, it, it happens that in 1998 we celebrate this this centennial. And not without some irony, um, the country that seemed most disposed to engage Cuba. Uh, at the time, um, was Spain. Uh, And again, there are several ironies here. One, that if the Americans went into Cuba in the 1890s to help Cuba, the Spanish went to Cuba in the 1990s to help Cuba against the Americans. Um, um, And so part of this kind of warm and fuzzy uh, relationship that's beginning with the with between Spain and, and uh, Cuba is a moment in which the summer of um, of uh, 1998, the city historian of of Cuba of Havana, um, and the Spanish ambassador in Cuba board a helicopter and um, fly over the. Um, entrance or exit to the harbor, the, the port of Santiago, which is a very narrow. And it was on this site that the that the, the devastation to the Spanish Armada took place, because as the Spanish Armada came out ship by ship in 1898, this was a naval battle. Um, one by one, they got blown out of the water by the U.S. Navy, and it was devastation. Um, and and so, on this occasion, in the summer of 1998, the uh, city historian of Havana and the Spanish ambassador to Cuba flew over the harbor and dropped flowers, petals, flower petals over the um, the waters just outside. The, the, the port of Santiago in commemoration of the lives lost um, in the naval battle with the United States. Um, it raised some eyebrows um, because it, there, is a, there is a sense that the Spanish waged a wicked war against the Cubans and that the, the politics of the late 20th century vis-a-vis Cuba, the United States, and Spain would result in honoring Spanish the Spanish Navy this way uh, just didn't quite sit well with many people. Um, and so, again, this is a way that this war continues to and expand into the uh, into today's environment. Um, and the war, of course, sets in motion so many different things. It's, it's a war that... Um, projects the United States and the Philippines and the Pacific, and then, of course, the seizure of Guam and Puerto Rico, and then more or less Cuba. Um, you know, it is, it is difficult, I think, for many historians uh, in the United States to look at this as a war that is nothing but nothing more than a naked war of territorial aggrandizement.
Um, it is a war that, as far as Theodore Roosevelt is concerned, who was then Assistant Secretary of the Navy, uh, it behooved the United States to seize colonies as a measure of greatness. And the low-hanging fruit of colonies in 1898 was the remnant of the Spanish Empire, which was the Philippines, Guam, and Puerto Rico, and Cuba. Uh, the first blow struck against Spain was not Cuba. Uh, it was on the other side of the world in the Pacific against the Spanish and the Philippines. And only a month or two later did the Americans land in, 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 in Cuba. And after the Spanish indicated a willingness to sue for peace, the United States held them at bay while, they, while the U.S. Army invaded Puerto Rico to seize Puerto Rico. So the Spanish would have been perfectly happy to surrender, but the U.S. would not accept an armistice until it had seized control of Puerto Rico. So one fell swoop, this war uh, that lasts effectively from the declaration in April of 1898 until August 12th, 1898, what's that, six months, um, really now sets the United States and establishes a global presence for the United States. And, and so looking forward past 1898, what's the effect of this war in the Caribbean? What happens to Cuba? And you also mentioned Puerto Rico, other islands that the U.S. invades. Um, you know, it's there. There is a um, the war. If I could just briefly sketch out what happens: the war, the the United, the, the the Americans come into Cuba. They seize the Cuban War for Independence. Um, it's important to stress, and it's often is lost sight of, that the Americans did not start a war. They joined a war in progress. Uh, the Spanish-American war phase of the Cuban War for Independence was 45 days. Um, and so the United States went into Cuba, seized control of the war, displaced the Cubans, made a treaty with, made an armistice with Spain in which the Cubans did not participate signed a treaty with Spain that the Cubans did not participate, um, and began a military occupation on January 1st, 1899, in which effectively President McKinley said, our authority in Cuba is one of the authority of a conquered territory. So the Americans arrived to Cuba in the guise of allies, but stay in the role of conquerors. Um, the, the U.S. proceeds then to, for the want of a better word, refurbish the social system that had supported Spanish, uh, Spanish colonial administration for the previous nearly 100 years. It, it begins to discredit the proposition of Cuban independence. It repudiates the capacity of Cubans to exercise self-government. It invokes all the racist tropes that Spain had used to justify uh, colonial administration. It evokes the fear of race war. 
it evokes the metaphor of Haiti, which is the stand-in metaphor for uh, race war, um, and then proceed to, as I said, refurbish the social constituencies and the economic uh, coalitions that had underwritten Spanish colonial rule, but kept Spain in Cuba since the beginning of the 19th century, and effectively, uh, what do I say? It, 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 it eviscerates anything but the most cynical definition of what sovereignty means. So that by the time the United States ends the military occupation of Cuba, um, Cuban sovereignty, Cuban independence is uh, more apparent than real. It is at this point that the United States in occupied Cuba seizes control of territory that will become the American naval station in Guantanamo. Uh, and the continuing legacy of 1898 is that the Americans still control that territory on the southeast coast of Cuba. Um, so the degree to which Cuban aspirations were compromised those aspirations for national sovereignty and self-determination, those aspirations of Cuba for Cubans, those aspirations of independence to address the, 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 uh, the grievances um, that, that had summoned Cuba to, to, to arms in the first place, all that remained unfinished. All that remained unresolved. Um, and... And what this sets in motion, and, and, and this can be this could be followed with with with, with considerable clarity, is that it leaves a legacy of an unfinished revolution. That what had summoned Cubans to arms and sacrifice for more than thirty years and cost Cubans hundreds of thousands of lives, um, those goals, those aspirations, those objectives that had summoned Cubans to sacrifice and struggle for more than 30 years, remained unfinished. And so it, it, it introduces into the Cuban polity, it introduces into the Cuban political imagination uh, almost immediately, when I say almost immediately, starting in 1901, 1902, and continuing for the decades that followed, this, this idea that each generation of politically active and politically aware Cubans had a, 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 a responsibility, a duty uh, to make good on the aspirations that had summoned the wars for independence. This unfinished revolution, these unfinished goals, uh, the aspirations of national sovereignty and self-determination that had that had bestirred Cubans in the 19th century, now become a legacy to which Cubans in the 20th century um, feel that they are heir to, and it's up to them to try to make good on that, on that, on those aspirations. So, if we if we look at politics of Cuba in the first half of the 20th century, we see two, perhaps three generations of Cubans in the 19, in, from the 1920s and 1940s, 1950s, kind of picking up the mantle and picking up the, the, the cause 
of 19th century liberation. In other words, this is not an idea that goes away. This is an idea that that, that insinuates, insinuates itself deeply into, into Cuban memory, into Cuban imagination, that something really went wrong with the American intervention, that, that you know, Americans like to think that that they did something they, that they did something for Cubans, and the Cubans believe that the Americans did something to Cubans, and so this idea then continues to just kind of percolate just below the surface, and sometimes it erupts. Uh, the young people of the 1920s and the struggle against Machado, you know, raised the banner of the 19th century wars for independence, and of course, the person who brings this to fruition is Fidel Castro, who picks up picks up and raises to uh, a remarkable clarity and clarion call for revolution. Um, if the Cuban revolution of, of Fidel Castro in the 19th in the 1959 has any resonance, any salient at all, it is the theme of national sovereignty and self-determination. If one knows nothing else about the, the Cuban revolution, those are the twin pillars that have sustained that and continue to sustain Cuba to this day. In other words, the Cuban revolution, the leadership, however hollow that may sound in 2020, um, it continues to be the lay motif of a revolution that proclaimed itself heir to the 19th century struggles. And I'm really glad you mentioned that. That was definitely something I was going to ask about. I'm curious, can you talk a little bit more about how narratives of the can you talk a little bit more about how the US narratives and the Cuban narratives of 1898 have diverged or always diverged you know because you mentioned at the very beginning we were talking about Spain and Cuba but what's the divide between these two histories well i think you start from the proposition you know one starts from the proposition that uh, to this day, I saw I saw just yesterday a um, a long essay that was written by a couple of folks on the Spanish American War, um, and the construction of that title. And I'm not the first, and I'm it's many many scholars, both in this country and abroad, who wince every time they hear this described as the Spanish-American War, um, because that construction denies the participation and presence of Cubans, and it continues to perpetuate uh, the trope that the Americans were the ones who freed Cuba. And somehow the previous three and a half years of Cuban warfare against Spain seemed to matter not at all. Um, so the very construction of that, of that, of, of that war which takes what was almost a four-year war and encapsulates it into 45 days, uh, serves to negate and deny the presence of Cubans in their own war. It would be as if uh, people will call the American War for Independence the Franco-Anglo War, okay? And somehow the Americans had nothing to do with it. Right, so we start from that. And, and increasingly more and more historians are calling this the Spanish-Cuban-American War and sometimes the Spanish-Cuban-Filipino-American War. Um, what is not acceptable is to identify this as the Spanish-American War uh, because it clearly, it, the, the, certainly the, 
the facet of it that took place in Cuba is far more complicated and has a far deeper history than quote-unquote Spanish-American war would suggest. What do you call it? Um, well, I can call it the War of 1898. Um, sometimes I will say the Spanish-American War phase of the Spanish-Cuban War, right, because it is a phase of that war. Um, and sometimes I would say the Spanish-Cuban-American War. So and you mentioned this, or you kind of alluded to this, but I'm curious, you know, what ways do you think that scholars, including yourself, are updating the history or the historiography of this time period? Uh, I don't know. I, I did a book on the anniversary of the war, 19, came out in 1998, in which I looked at, spent a long time taking a look at American history textbooks. Um, how, you know, starting from the 1910s and 20s right up through the 1980s and 90s, how the war was was depicted and described and evaluated and analyzed. Um, and I would say that with some notable exceptions, um, the historiography, the U U.S. historiography of this war continues to be more or less unchanged. Um, a few days ago, I was thinking maybe perhaps it may be time to revisit this literature to see what has been, what do the textbooks of the last 20 years, have they, have they reflected any change? Uh, have they arrived at a, at a deeper understanding of what 1898 means? Um, because in point of fact, what happens, what happens in, 1959 and 1960, as the, as the leadership of the Cuban Revolution began to, begin to um, uh, hurl criticism against the United States uh, for, for having interrupted uh, and precluded the war for independence, per the Cuban historians, um, that narrative that political rhetoric that came from Havana in 1959 and 1960 arrived to the United States to the complete bafflement of Americans. Because all this time, all this time, um, the Cubans who were at the receiving end of American history, uh, all this time, Americans thought, and not surprisingly, given the, the history and the historians they read, believe that the United States did a noble deed, that the United States, with sacrifice of life and treasure, uh, went to Cuba and to, to, to aid and assist the struggling Cuban people win their independence against the iniquitous Spanish administration. Uh, and his, Americans, and including American politicians, took umbrage that the Cubans um, uh, would uh, assume such a hostile tone to the United States because, after all, the United States had helped them win their independence, that the United States had helped them, you know, pick them up when they fell down. And so you have these two narratives that just totally miss each other, uh, that are not engaged in any, any remote conversation with one another. And the, you are talking about two nations that exist in in talking about the same history, but coming from this in, in parallel universes. And as you're talking about that, I'm curious if you think, you know, 
things it may be easier to improve the the historical record or, or update the historical record because at the time you're talking about in the middle of the 20th century, a lot of those historians or politicians, you know, either they had lived through those events um, and had formed the opinions they had, or their parents, let's say, had fought in the wars or formed the opinions they had. You know, do you think that with time, especially from U.S. literature or re- or U.S. scholars, that it's easier to update the record now, or has it mostly been unchanged? I don't know. Um, as I said, I not just days ago, I, in, in, in anticipation of speaking with you, um, it occurred to me, you know, what does what does the the, the historical scholarship, uh, what do, what do American textbooks say today? The last twenty years, um, like I said, I did this book. I completed the research for that book by by nineteen ninety eight, so more than twenty years have passed. Mm. And so I do not know. I do not know how historians of the United States. I know how historians of Cuba are dealing with this mostly, but I do not know how historians of the United States who are writing histories of American foreign policy, history of American foreign relations, his survey histories of the United States in the nineteenth and twentieth century. Um, just to focus, just to focus on that one year, you know, how how is eighteen ninety eight explained to in a textbook that is meant for you know f- you know history one hundred and one to the incoming freshman class? I, I I do not know. Yeah. Okay. And so then I think a good question to wrap up on, which you've alluded to already, you, you've answered it in a lot of ways already. But why is this important? You know, do you think that by updating this record by I guess having the views of history come into a little bit more of alignment or understanding, you know, do you think that will help change the relationship between the U.S. and Cuba today? Um, do you? Why is this important? Um, why is it important? <laughs> I, w- I would first say that it's important to understand. Um, to get a fuller appreciation of 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 a of a, of a history um, from, as I said, from the receiving end. Um, the The United States uh, intruded into Cuban history and deflected uh, a historical process uh, that had already been in motion for two generations, three generations. And profoundly changed the course of Cuban history. Um, and, and I think it's important, and, and, and this is a role that historians can play to the best of their ability, to um, uh, peel back the layers and, and try to understand um, what were the forces that are operating in Cuba in 1898, um, to what degree. Um, were the Cubans, uh, what's the word, deceived, uh, preempted from their history? Um, And I understand the difficulty. Uh, This precludes that the historian of the United States should, to get that insight, must read Cuban materials and Cuban sources, and not everybody has reading capacities in another language. So that blocks off that for the access for many. 
it's important to understand, you know, this, what we call, you know, blowback, that events that happened 10, 15, 20, 100 years ago have consequences, that the past is really not past. Uh, and, and it's important to try to understand from the Cuban point of view of, of how these, um, these grievances do not go away. And I was, I was struck by when Obama in, uh, renewed diplomatic relations with Cuba, his frame of reference was that it was time to put the Cold War uh, to rest that the that the difficulties and the in the in the, uh, the hostility between Cuba and the United States was of Cold War origins, um, and he did not appreciate um, that the hostility and the difficulties between Cuba and the United States uh, precede the Cold War. They are historic, and if you want to fix a point, just a you know kind of. A, a pinpoint on a chronology. Uh, it is probably 1898, good a place of any to begin to, uh, as a point of departure, to understand the difficulties of Cuba-U.S. relations. I think that's a good place to wrap up. And as we're recording now, we'll have uh, a connection to that Obama presidency. Joe Biden's going to be coming into office soon, so perhaps you know he will look to 1898 instead of the Cold War. So thank you so much, Professor Perez. Thank you so much, Professor Perez, for joining. I really appreciate having these several conversations with you. Now, if people have enjoyed your perspective, are there any books, works that you're finishing up that you're excited about right now that you want to share? Um, well, I'm finishing one up, but it won't be available for another year or two. So if, if okay. anybody, wants to, anybody wants to follow up 1898, the book I did, 22 years ago in the War of 1898. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate, review, and make sure to tell your friends about this show. It helps us get discovered and make more amazing content. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. <laughs>